0: From a doomed planet in a distant galaxy to a fantastic underground hideaway from the fortress of solitude to the bustling city room of the daily planet Look Up on the screen It's Superman Superman The Movie Rated PG Now playing, check newspapers for local listing
1: On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome back author and film scholar extraordinaire Ray Morton. Mr. Morton joined us last year for an excellent conversation recounting the making of Close Encounters, The Third Kind. Tonight, he'll be recounting stories behind the making of Superman the Movie, courtesy of interviews he conducted with that film's director, Richard Donner, and creative consultant, Tom Mankiewicz. Mr. Morton is the author of such books as Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the making of Steven Spielberg's classic film, A Hard Day's Night, music on film series, a guide, a quick guide to screenwriting, and my favorite, King Kong, the history of a movie icon from Fay Ray to Peter Jackson, which I could not recommend more All of your books are great, but that's the one that holds a special place in my heart because I'm such a King Kong nut, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm glad. That's terrific. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you back on our show to talk Superman the Movie on its 40th anniversary. Now, I've seen some of your Facebook posts, and I was fascinated to find out that you saw Superman the Movie at the Lowe's Astor in New York City, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I...
0: Uh, well, actually, I didn't. I did not see it there, but it did play there.
1: Um, oh, okay. But I, I didn't. I
0: didn't see it at Lowe's. I saw it in um, on Long Island for the first
1: time, actually. Oh, okay. I know yeah. it played at the Lowe's, and I saw a posting there, and I was just absolutely fascinated when I saw your your picture of the marquee, and you were yes. recounting how it was a um, a theater that was underground, and you had to take an escalator to go down, and it was a huge screen and they did 70 millimeter screenings of it during its original release, which I thought was fascinating. That's right. And yeah.
0: The, low, the Lowe's Astor Plaza in Manhattan was if you wanted to see a movie on the big screen and you wanted to see a big movie on the big screen, there were only two theaters. It was the mm-hmm. Ziegfeld and the Lowe's, the Lowe's Astor Plaza. I saw many, many movies there, just not Superman. But yeah, so, you, you got on an escalator. You went about three stories underground into the biggest
1: auditorium with this wonderful screen.
0: And uh, I'm so sorry that theater's gone.
1: Oh, that's just heartbreaking to hear that it's gone, too, because I just, it makes me sad. I I just, I can't imagine being an 8-year-old boy and seeing Superman the movie in an environment like that. I I don't know if I would live to tell about it, because I think it probably just (laughs) (laughs) would (laughs) have... Right, right. (laughs) I would have been so overcome with emotion... I probably just – they would have just carried me out to the ambulance right there immediately. (laughs) But as it were, uh, it, it is a great film, and I have very, very good memories of seeing it the first time myself. So I'll get you to just tell a little bit about your first impressions and when you saw it the first time and what you thought.
0: Well, I saw, it, I, I saw it probably a few weeks after it opened, because in those days you could actually wait a couple weeks to see a movie. <laughs> before Now you can't yeah. do that anymore. Um, and I was a really big fan of the George Reeves Superman TV show. And for mm-hmm. me, and also the comic book, but I think the TV show was the first thing for me. And and then I was reading the comics in the 70s when it was sort of the Kurt Swan era, which is still my favorite era of Superman um, and I remember thinking when I went to the movie, I couldn't – it was hard to tell, you know, was this going to be good or was this going to be, you know, terrible? Because there were memories, not really of the Batman TV show, which I think is great, but there were a lot of not very good TV movie superhero things in those days. There was a terrible Captain America TV movie, a couple of them actually. <laughs> and uh, there was some terrible Doc Savage movie. And I remember thinking to myself, so, you know, maybe it's going to be one of those. And I sat down, and I I remember as the lights went down, what went through my head was, this is either going to be terrible or this is going to be great. And as soon as those titles started, those wonderful Richard Greenberg titles, um, swishing through and that great John Williams music, I thought to myself, this is going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and I really thought it was. I mean, I was a kid when I saw it. So I just loved it as a great Superman movie. Um, I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny. I thought it was thrilling. I thought the effects were, you know, for their day, brilliant. And I actually still think quite a few of the effects in that movie are still really terrific. Um, So I I enjoyed it on that level the first time I saw it. And I went and saw it a couple more times during its initial run. And I remember there's one story I have, which... To me, it's a great story about Superman the movie, and I think how effective it was. But I also it's as a favorite story because it's about really what movies can do when they do it right. I remember I think like the third time I saw it, um, I was living in um, Stamford, Connecticut, and there was a second run house there called the State Cinema. So by this time, the movie had been playing for a few months. It was a little torn up and. You know, scratchy and all that kind of stuff, but Mm -hmm. still great. And there was this little boy sitting in front of me, probably six or seven, and he was just staring at the screen, like, in awe, and his mom was sitting next to him. And when Christopher Reeve runs in and turns into Superman for the first time and flies up and saves Lois Lane from the helicopter, this kid's eyes opened as wide as anyone's eyes could open, and he just turned to his mom and he said, Mom! Mom! It's Superman. And he was so <laughs> excited. And I I thought to myself, I love this movie as a movie, but that's the power of movies if you do it right. And that movie, in my opinion, did it right.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it yeah. really did. It really did. And, and the thing for me, and I use Superman the movie sort of as um, a yardstick by which we should measure the current crop of superhero yes. films. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, agree. Because, yeah, it's true because the thing that's missing with this and I know I sound like an old fogey when I say this but the thing that is missing from this current crop of superhero films is the emotional connection that you get from Superman the movie that's the thing yeah. that that I just don't feel uh, it's all about action and you know trying to promote the next Character that's going to have uh, his standalone film, and they're they're just shoving so much stuff into these films, overstuffing them. But they forget to. You're not. You're never moved as a human being. I, I don't think. And I think that's the thing that I, I just always recall that scene at the end of the movie when Lois dies after the earthquake, and the raw emotion when he screams, you know, into the heavens or whatever. At the fact yep. that he's this person that he loves the most, that he's that she has died, he was busy saving everybody else, but he the person that he meant the most to him, he could not save. And just like his father, and that's another great scene. I talked to Jeff East about that last year. We spoke uh, for a while, and I told him that th- that that scene is just so beautifully played between. Uh, between yeah. him and uh, and um, Glenn, Ford. Glenn Ford, and it's yeah. a testament to how the it's just perfectly done. And uh, of course, he gave all the credit to Richard Donner, uh, <laughs> but I, I said, well, you well you nailed it. You know, when you did it, the way you chose to to handle that, so it all works to, in tandem, I guess. But you know, that's what we're missing. We're missing these emotional connections that we that that from this current crop of superhero films and. And uh, I, I think people have been denied that and they don't realize what they're missing. So, I think that's yeah,
0: the- yeah, no, I agree. I, I One of the things that I think is so wonderful about that movie, I mean, I think there's a lot of elements to it that are great, but I think it has heart and it has heart. It's genuine heart. And you know it's not. I mean, I you know, I, I mean, I think there have been some very good superhero movies since then, and and some not so very good ones. But that one had, it had that thing that those great fantasy films of the seventies had, which is the people who made them really believed in them. I mean, really believed, like they believed in the sentiment, and the idea. And the thing about Dick Donner is that he, you know, whatever else. He is good at, and I think he's good at many things. He he is a guy with a lot of heart, and it tends to come through in his movies. But I don't think it ever came through stronger than in that film. And one of the great, and this is where you sort of you sort of see the how how one thing can make a difference. I read I read the only part the only script draft I've not read of that movie is the original Mario Puzo draft because I can't find it anywhere. Rumor has it there's one in the Warner Brothers script library, but I haven't got there yet. Mm. Um, but I read all of the David Newman and Leslie Newman and Robert Benton drafts of it. And it's a really interesting lesson because almost all of the incidents are that are in the movie are in those scripts. There's also a lot more. They're very long and but they're just a bunch of incidents. There's no through line to any of them, and there's no heart, because those guys were interested in something a little more like the Batman TV show. They were being very clever and very satirical, but if you read those scripts, they just kind of lay there. And Tom Mankiewicz told me when I talked to him, he said the key for the movie was, and it was Donner's idea, Donner told him, you have to rewrite this, and the key to this is the relationship between Superman and Lois and Clark. He said, if we can make that believable, and the phrase they used was two kids on a date, that if we can make you care about these two kids on a date, the rest of the movie will work. And he says, if not, it's just going to be a bunch of special effects. So what's great about that film is, is that scene you're talking about, that is the heart of that story. He falls in love with her, and he loses her. And when he loses her... He uses his powers to do something miraculous. That's why we care about that movie, because it's just so full of heart and, and caring about that, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great yeah. summation and yeah, and and I do love how it how it does call back to him losing his father, his earth father earlier in the movie. It does kind of call back to that, which it all kind of ties together, losing the people closest to you when you're trying to do what's best for mankind. And yep. uh, yeah, that's it's just it's. It, you're right. It, it's and it does have so much heart. But but I would like to get into it a little bit uh, about those early drafts and and how Richard Donner came on board. I know you've spoken to Donner and the late Tom Mankiewicz. Unfortunately, we lost yes. him a little while back, and I understand yes. he was ill at the time, or he had just gotten a diagnosis of cancer, I believe, when you spoke with him.
0: Yeah, he, um, he, he when I talked to him, it was a very interesting conversation because he wouldn't he did I mean he had no reason to tell me directly, but what he kept telling me is, you know I'm playing the back nine now, and he kept saying that throughout the interview, and I I know what that phrase means, and I didn't mm-hmm. push it because I I but but yeah he knew and uh, he's a great guy. I had a wonderful afternoon with him, uh, really nice afternoon.
1: Yeah, and, and I'll just remind our listeners, too, that he before he came on board with Superman, he had contributed scripts or written or co-written scripts for three of the Bond films. Uh He right. said uh, yeah. Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, yeah, he so also was, did
0: uncredited rewrite on The Spy Who Loved Me, and he wrote the original story for Moonraker, though he... Uh, He declined credit for that, Um, but he so he basically worked on all of the Bond movies of the set. Basically,
1: now that's interesting. I didn't I didn't realize his involvement with Spy Who Loved Me or Moonraker. So that's yeah, that moves to me. That's that's very good. So and of course he did Dragnet, uh, which yes, (laughs) a little later, but yes, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I'm I'm actually I have a soft spot for that one. I'll have to admit that. I thought Oh, it's that, very that, funny. Yeah, it, it is. It is, and and I was always surprised that that movie made a, a good number, a, a good bit of money, but never got a sequel, which is a, a kind of surprising when it was the late '80s and everything was getting sequelized, yeah. and I never could figure figure that out. Yeah. So I think
0: but, it did okay. I did well, but it didn't do like well enough to. Right, give universal delusions of sequels, I suppose <laughs> or, or however you, <laughs> or however weird. you go about that, right yeah, yeah, yeah right but um but, but anyway, I, well, you were talking about the beginnings of Superman basically um yeah well it started with the producers were um Alexander and Ilya Salkine a father and son producing team and they had done uh the three musketeers and then its sequel the four musketeers in the sort of early to mid 70s and those were big hits and they were looking around for something else to do and it was Ilya's idea he was the son and at the time he was about 26 years old And he had grown up on the Superman TV show and the Superman comics, And he tells different stories about how it happened. But basically, he got the idea to do Superman as a movie. Um, And so his father was one of those producers that were very prevalent in the 70s and are no longer prevalent anymore, uh, based in Europe, and raised a lot of money from um, different bankers and things in europe like they would put together financing sort of piecemeal on a territory by territory basis um and perhaps from some other sources as well but you know we won't go into that um and (laughs) so their idea was they wanted to do superman and they decided to make it an event so they wanted to do it as two movies at the same time because they had shot the three musketeers as one film and then, uh, and then cut it into two films later, which got all of the actors ticked off. Um, and you know Because they were like, well, you pay this for one movie, you got two out of it. So this time they said, we're going to do it as two movies from the start. Uh, and so their first thought was they had to get a writer, and they went to William Goldman. And uh, the story that is told is that William Goldman really liked the idea, but he could not figure out how to approach it So he turned them down, and then so they went to Mario Puzo because, you know, right then was, you know, the the heat of the Godfather and Godfather Two success, and Puzo was, you know, a pretty big figure in those days. Puzo liked it. He did some research. He went up to DC Comics, and uh, he did some research, and then um, came up with a story. The legend is it is a 500-page. They called it a script, but my understanding is it was really more of a treatment sort of a novelistic uh, thing to, to contain two movies. And it's basically the plot of the first two Superman movies, Superman 1 and Superman 2. And, and the other thing that's important, because it comes in later with Richard Donner, is it, this was not a Warner Brothers-owned DC Comics at that time. They had just bought them. It was a fairly new acquisition. But this was not a Warner Brothers movie. This was an independent film. The Salkinds, Warners wasn't interested in making a Superman movie because they thought it would be like Batman. Um, and they they basically allowed the rights to go to this independent producer. And then they later made um, a distribution deal. So the Salkinds would make the movie. Warners would distribute it in the United States and Canada. And that, that becomes important a little bit later. But anyway, so they got the script, and then they were looking around for a big name actor to play Superman because you needed a name actor to get financing, and they basically couldn't find one that would be believable, that would work, uh, so they decided instead to put uh, stars in the roles of Lex Luthor and jor and so make them sort of the key supporting stars, and then later they figure out what they're going to do about Superman. So they they got Marlon Brando famously. He was paid $3 million for three weeks' work, and people were outraged at the time. But the truth is it was good money spent because if they didn't get Brando, uh, Brando's what brought all the rest of the financing. As soon as people thought new Brando was in it, they were willing to finance the film so that it actually was a very good investment. Um, and then Gene Hackman signed up because he wanted to work with Brando. So now they had they had a script coming along. They had uh, these two stars, and they hired Guy Hamilton to direct it. Guy Hamilton had been the guy who'd done a bunch of the bomb films, Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever, and all that. Um, and Guy Hamilton said the script wasn't workable, so they brought in David Newman and Leslie. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Robert Benton and David Newman who were a big screenwriting team, and Newman, uh, Benton, had just become a director at that point. Uh, and basically the deal they made was that Benton and Newman would do two drafts of the script, then Benton was going to leave to work on a movie of his own, and then Leslie Newman, David Newman's wife, was going to come in and do the, finish the rewrites. So they did, I think it was four drafts all together, that, that team, and Guy Hamilton was ready to go, and they were going to shoot it at um, Cinecitta in Rome. The big studio over there but then brando got in trouble because um he made last tango in paris and they considered that obscene in in italy and people were arrested for obscenity so essentially there was a warrant out for uh, brando's arrest so brando's like i'm not going to italy so they decided to move the whole production to england but in those days, England had a really high tax rates on people who made a lot of money. And so a lot of the people who were high earners moved, had, had to move out of the country. And basically, Guy Hamilton was one of those. So he couldn't, he couldn't go with it to England because he couldn't work in England or he'd have to pay like 90% of his salary in taxes. So now they needed to find a new director. And the word uh, Elias Alkine was married to Skye Aubrey who was a pretty big TV actress in those days, and apparently she had worked with Dick Donner on a couple of things, and she recommended him, and right as she was recommending him, The Omen came out, and the Salkinds were always interested in whoever was the flavor of the week, and Donner became the flavor of the week because The Omen was a big hit, so they offered him uh, a million dollars to direct both movies, which was a pretty gigantic amount of money in those days. Um, and he was a little nervous because the Salchins had kind of a shady reputation, but he had some guarantees from them. One of the guarantees was they had to start shooting the movie within like eleven weeks of his hire, because that was one that Brando—that was when Brando had signed up to do it. So basically, Donner only had eleven weeks to prepare. So what he—they agreed to do was they would shoot all of the Brando stuff and then shut down so that he could take some time to do the rest of his preparation. Um, and the Salkinds agreed to that. So Donna came on board because he really loved Superman, and as he has said in many interviews, and he said to me, um, he wanted to protect it because he felt like Guy Hamilton was a very good director but a guy with a very um, satirical take on the material, and he felt the Salkinds didn't really understand the material at all. Uh, so he felt like he needed to be the guy to protect the essence of Superman. Um, and he made them bring in Tom Mankiewicz to rewrite it because Donner didn't like the script as it was. The very famous story was, I mean, it was full of a lot of um, jokey, campy things. There's Lex Luthor, through the whole thing, gets agitated, and when he gets agitated, he chews Kleenex. He basically eats Kleenex all through <laughs> the script. That was apparently a trait that... Uh, a very famous agent at the time used to do. So they put that in. And the other famous joke that was in the script was Superman's looking for Lex Luthor. He's flying around Metropolis. He sees a bald guy. He flies down and grabs the ball guy and the bald guy turns around and it's Telly Savalas of Kojak fame. And he says the line from Kojak, who loves you baby? And uh, <laughs> Donner just couldn't take that. <laughs> so, so they brought um, Tom in and, with the idea that they were going to rewrite the script to focus on this relationship. And Tom did that. And, I, and the, the key moment, one of the most famous and wonderful scenes in the movie is the scene where Superman takes Lois flying through the skies of Metropolis on what is really their first date. And in the original drafts by the Newmans and Benton. All it is is the interview scene. Uh, Superman flies in and they interview, you know, Lois interviews them. And some of the jokes are in there are the same and some of them are different. But that's basically it. And there's a little bit of attraction as they're talking to one another. And it was Tom's idea. He said, I have a better idea. Have him take her flying. And Donner loved it. And that's really where their rewrite grew out of, that sequence. And I think you can see that all through the movie. So that's how it got rolling.
1: I know, and during that process, there were a couple of things that I wanted to see if they were actually true or not, and maybe, and sure. I'm, I'm thinking you might know. One is that I've heard Bruce Jenner auditioned in Rome, Italy, for for the role. Uh, that is correct. He did. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> And I was trying to I know John Barry uh, was not the first choice as production designer. I know they had a production designer before John Barry. And we're not talking about yes. the composer, John Barry, we're talking about the production right. designer who's a total totally different guy for any of our listeners right. who get them confused. This is the guy who I believe also worked on Star Wars. I yes, believe John he Barry did Star Wars. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I was wondering who that—the uh, guy who replaced—who that was. If I don't know if you know or not, I was just curious. I,
0: I don't know exactly. I, I su- suspect it was Peter Merton who had worked on some of the bonds, but mm-hmm. I, I can't—I don't know that for sure. Oh, okay. Um, but but yeah, no, they—they they had uh, Hamilton had his, had a, a, an entire crew of his own. Right. Donner basically, Donner rejected all of them. He wanted his own team, which you know a director will do. So he and I've seen some of the early production design work uh, prior to John Barry arriving, and it's it's fine. It's a little more sort of cliche science fiction of that time, a little Logan's run like. Um, you know, and it's fine. like it it is what you would have expected, but it wasn't really anything special. John Barry came in, and his his great contribution was to suggest they needed to find a visual link between the Fortress of Solitude and Krypton. And obviously, the Fortress of Solitude is in the North Pole, so it was John Barry's idea to make Krypton a crystal place, uh, like the inside of a crystal, and that would be the visual motif would be white and icy, and so would the North Pole and and that was the first thing he contributed and Donner said as soon as he said that he, he found the right guy for the project oh yeah 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 and he uh, Donner also brought in who I think is is not as well remembered as he should be but he brought in the director of photography Jeffrey Unsworth and I think Unsworth Unsworth makes that film look like a fairy tale he he was very well known for shooting things with a lot of diffusion to give them kind of a fairy tale look to them, and he brought that to Superman um, you know in spades. it was just wonderful uh, and also with Jeffrey Unsworth with his camera operator, a guy named Peter McDonald, and in the English system, the camera operator is the guy who actually works with the director to frame shots and things and and I'm not sure there's a better frame than photographed. Uh, big-budget movie from that era than Superman. So Donner brought all those guys in, and, uh, and, you know, and, that, and they were off and running, basically. And in 11 weeks, they got the Brando stuff shot, and then, and then they, they shut down to prepare, and then the Salkinds started cutting back on the budget, and that's when the famous battles between uh, Salkinds and Donner began.
1: Yeah, I think uh, wasn't it early, fairly early in '77 when uh, Brando was already done, uh, or mid '77, something like that. And I think he was he was early on, I believe.
0: Yeah, he. They shot. They started shooting at the end of March of 1977. Donna was hired uh, right around Christmas time of 1976, and they shot the Brando stuff. Uh, late March through April of 77,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: Brando, you know, he was pretty much, he was wrapped out right away. He he worked his three weeks. He worked three weeks in one day because he showed up one day with a head cold and asked Donner if he could go home, and Donner said, you know, you're going to cost me a lot of money if you go home, and he said, I'll give you a free day, and, um, yeah, and he gave him the free day. So he worked three weeks in one day. There you go.
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. a bad deal for the but money he, he received. <laughs> not a bad deal, but he also
0: did a great job. I mean, you he know, did. he did. He was he was doing you know faux Shakespeare, but yeah, um, yeah Mankiewicz told me a great story. You know, uh, Tom Mankiewicz's father was Joseph Mankiewicz, the famous writer director, and and he had directed Brando in Julius Caesar about twenty years prior to that, and Brando never did Shakespeare. He only did Shakespeare once. He did it. In Julius Caesar for Joe Mankowitz, and he said, uh, you know, years later they're on the set in England, and he comes up, uh, Brando comes up to Tom Mankiewicz, and he reads him one of the speeches. And the speeches is one of the ones when um, the little baby Callel is flying to Earth, and you hear Jorrell giving him lectures. And one of the lectures is, and I might not get the words exactly right here, but um, they can be a great people, Callel, if they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. And Brando said to Tal Mankowitz, do you know that that's iambic pentameter, like Shakespeare used to write in? And Mankowitz actually said, I didn't realize it was iambic pentameter, but as he and Brando worked through it, he realized it was. And Mankowitz was in awe of the fact that this guy had only done Shakespeare one time, could recognize, understand, and then perform very well, you know, Shakespearean type dialogue. And Mankowitz said he just made him so happy, you know.
1: That's amazing. It really is. It's yeah. a testament to his talent, and we've we've heard all the crazy Brando stories, but when yeah. it got down got down to brass tacks, I mean, he could really do what needed to be done and and bring it uh, bring it to the plate. Uh, I know uh, the, I've heard this story too that uh, Richard Donner was warned that Brando might try to get out of, actually, you you could probably tell the story better than I can. Uh, that's, That's a good one.
0: Well, Brando was infamous in that period. He either really put his heart into stuff or he was the laziest mercenary you could find. And so he signed this deal, $3 million for three weeks' work, and uh, Donner said Donner got the job, and Brando was already part of the part of package when, when Donner came on board, so he had to go meet him. And he, he talked to uh, Jay Cantor, who was at different times was a big agent in Hollywood, and he was also a big studio executive at 20th Century Fox, kind of when they did Star Wars. So Jay Cantor is a terrific old Hollywood veteran, but he had been Brando's agent, so Donner called him and he said, so give me some tips on how to handle Brando. And he said, well, Brando's really lazy, and if he can get out of working, he will. And he also counts on the fact that you're going to be intimidated by him. So he said he's going to want to play it like a suitcase. And and Donna was laughing. He said, I don't know what that means. What does that mean he wants to play it like a suitcase? And he said, he's going to try to convince you that jurell shouldn't be a human. He should be some alien creature that looks like a suitcase and then he can do a voiceover and he doesn't actually have to go to England and shoot the movie. And, uh, and that way they'll pay him his money and he can stay at home and do the voiceover. So Donald was like, okay, got it. So he went to meet Brando and Brando, uh, he, he did a long conversation and Brando wasn't getting to the point. Finally he said, you know, Donald said, well, can we talk about the movie? And Brando said, okay, let's talk. He goes, I have an idea, Dick. I wanna play it like a bagel. Donner said he was laughing. He was like, I was I was ready for suitcase, but I wasn't ready for bagel. And then he said <laughs> basically the same pitch, what if I don't look like a human? What if I look like some weird alien object like a bagel? And then and then he said, What if I don't even make human sounds? What if what if I just my I speak in like beeps and and squeals and things, and so Donner was laughing because he was like not only does he not want to do the on-screen performance, he doesn't want to do the, he doesn't want to do the voiceover now. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and Donner also understood something, which is Brando's reputation was if he liked you, then he would do anything for you, and if he didn't like you, he would make your life miserable, and he loved testing people. So Donner actually knew that he was being tested, and he knew that if he put a foot wrong. Brando was going to be a nightmare to work with. So if, and Brando had told some story about uh, telling stories to his children. And he said, you know, every time you, know, you tell a kid a story, you can't change any detail because kids know every detail of a story. So you have to do it exactly the way they expect it. And Donner brought that back up again later. He said, well, you know, all kids, they know what Jarrell looks like and they really are going to want you to play Jurel. And he said, Brando started laughing. He said, he goes, I talk too much. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and Donner said, yeah. And he said, from that moment on, Brando was wonderful with him. And they had a great time. He and Tom and Dick had a great, great time on the set. Brando was a dream to work with. You will travel far,
1: my little galop. Oh.
0: We will never leave you Even in the face of our death The richness of our lives shall will be yours All that I have, all that I've learned Everything I feel All this and more I I bequeath
1: you, my son You will carry me inside you all the days of your life you will make my strength your own see
0: my life through your eyes as your life will be seen through mine the son becomes the father and
1: the father the the son this is all I all I can send you the other Brando story I'm curious about is I've heard that one of the reasons why Donner was fired or dismissed from Superman mm-hmm. 2 was over the fact that the Salkinds just didn't want to pay extra for the footage of Brando, uh, pay- to have to pay Brando to use footage of him. There was something along those lines. I don't know the real right. story. But- yeah,
0: well, yeah. The, the, actually, the firing of Donner was separate from the Brando thing, but basically kind of for the same reasons, which was the kinds were these independent producers, and they had to raise a lot of money to make the film. And what happened was they really, Donner's opinion was, they simply lacked the kind of experience required uh, for, to make one of these big, giant movies. So they got this thing going, and it ended up costing just way more money than they anticipated, and they ended up having to borrow more money, and what they ended up doing um, in a couple of different stages was Warner Brothers by then had seen the footage that Donner was working on, and they really loved it. So they came in, they basically gave the Salkinds all the money needed to finish the movie, but in exchange, they ended up part-owning the film, which was not originally the deal and which the Salkinds resented because if Warners was a part owner of the film, they also financially took a lot of the money from the proceeds. So, and the, the Salkinds blamed this on Donner because they said the, the thing that they said at the time was he was painstaking. He was shooting things from every angle and he was ordering things done over and over again and that he was irresponsible was sort of the way they, they, they said And what most of the people I've talked to, including Donner, but also other people who aren't as directly involved, said was Donner was trying to get things right, and the Salkinds had promised him a certain amount of money to perfect the flying before they started shooting, and then they reneged on that um, because they were trying to save money. And uh, so they had to kind of do it as they went along, which is always much more expensive. But Donner said, we can't do a movie where you don't believe the flying. We can't do a Superman movie where you don't believe the flying. So he really stuck to his guns on that. And, and the movie just was bigger than anybody thought it was going to be. And everything took longer. And, you know, the visual effects took longer. And that was just the way those movies went in those days. But the Salkinds were really resentful of Donner for this. So when the movie came out and was a hit, uh he daughter had plan they they had filmed a lot of superman 2 concurrently with superman 1 but when the money got tight they decided to put uh superman 2 on hold and just finish superman 1 cuz the thought was if people don't like superman 1 there's no real reason to finish superman 2 and so the plan was about 6 weeks after the superman opened everyone was supposed to get back together and finish superman 2 and in the interim, um, the Salkinds fired Donner, uh, and then brought in Richard Lester, who, while a wonderful, wonderful director, was also known as kind of a quick, a quick director who was not a perfectionist, and they just wanted someone to basically come in and finish the movie up and get it out. And I think Superman two kind of looks like that, to be honest. But the other piece was their deal with Brando was he got $3 million for three weeks' work and 11% of the gross. And that was his deal. And that was what allowed the Salkinds to make Superman. And he had the same, I mean, he made the deal for both movies. So that was his deal for Superman 2. And they figured that if they cut him out of the movie, didn't use him, they didn't have to pay him the 11% of the gross. Uh, And then that's what they did. And had Donner stayed on, he would not have allowed it. So that was, there was probably part of that was, part of why they got rid of Donner. It wasn't the main reason though. But yeah, so they cut, they cut Brando completely out of
1: Superman. Chip. Yeah. I, th- I thought that was because I had heard, and I th- I think Jeff East is the one that told me that. I think he's the one that told me that, uh, it had something to do with, with Brando not being used, uh, or them not wanting yeah. to use for financial reasons, not wanting to yes. use Brando. But, uh, but this brings up another point too, uh, or something that I'm interested in, about too. That the Donner cut, of course, it was reassembled from what footage they could find, uh, and right. you know, it's it's it was nice to see it and all that. But I found it interesting that basically in Superman one and two, the ending is the same. And I can't imagine that Donner would have done that. I, but uh, the official Donner cut—it's the exact same ending as Superman the movie, where he turns the world back again. And right. So I was, well, one, yeah. Yeah.
0: Go <laughs> ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 No. No. Yeah. Well, the story behind that is that the original ending of Superman the movie—it was going to be because it was in two parts. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning of Superman the movie they put the three criminals into the phantom zone and send them off into space. And right. if you notice in Superman 1, you never see them again after that. The original ending of uh, the original ending of Superman 1 was Superman was going to take the rockets that he that he stops from blowing up the earth and he there's one that he shoots off into space and then he flies back down to deal with the other one. Um, and originally that rocket was going to go just like in the movie, and Superman was going to save everybody uh, in the same way he does in, in the movie now. But Lois Lane actually didn't die in the original ending. She was in a very precarious position, brought on by the earthquake, and he's saving everybody, and she's just about to die, and the last thing he does in that sequence is he saves Lois Lane. And that was and and that was going to be the end of that part of the story. And then after Superman puts Lex, uh, puts Lex and Otis in jail, and he flies up past the camera, the reason that he flies up into space is they wanted him to fly past the camera, and then the camera was going to pan out into space, and you were going to follow that rocket that he threw out there, and that rocket was going to fly and smash into the the Phantom Zone, and free the criminals. So the ending was going to be the criminals flying to Earth going, we're free, we're free. And then you know that they're going to cause lots of trouble in Superman 2. The ending of Superman 2 was turning back the world because Lois, you know, Lois and, and Superman realized they can't be together, and she's just devastated. And he feels so bad that she has to basically go through life heartbroken that he turns back the world so that she will forget that she knew who he was. And that way she won't go through her life feeling heartbroken. And at the end of Superman two, the status quo was restored. He, he's Clark Kent. She doesn't know his secret identity or she's not heartbroken. She still treats Clark like crap. And, and you know, the Superman story would go on as it always has for, for 70, 80 years. Um, when they were filming Superman 1, Warner Brothers, and and in a couple different places, Warner Brothers had this idea. I think they got it from Richard Lester. But their feeling was the end of Superman 1 lacked an emotional kick. And the idea was maybe they could put that spectacular ending of Superman 2, which they also felt was the most spectacular visual effect, put it on Superman 1 because that would be, you know, again, with the theory that if nobody liked Superman 1, it didn't really matter what the ending of Superman 2 was like. So they thought they would put it on Superman 1 to make that movie as spectacular as they could. They did that, um, and then that left them, and that meant they cut away the cliffhanger ending with the three villains, and that meant that they were going to have to come up with another ending for Superman 2. Um, they also were going to need to come up with a new beginning because they were going to have to free the the three villains, um, and that was part of what Donner and Mankiewicz were working on when Donner got fired. Uh, and I asked both of them, what was your ending going to be? And they, neither of them could remember what the ending was going to be. I don't know what it was going to be. Um, and so when they did the Donner cut, because they didn't have an ending, they thought, well, we're just going to follow the original script. We'll give you that ending because that was how it was originally planned. But I think they, even they knew it would feel unsatisfying to people. But that whole project is kind of fraught with that a little bit, I think. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: I it's it was. I found it interesting to to be able to see it. Um, you know, it was not. It was almost like seeing Christopher Reeve beyond the grave uh, yeah, in another Superman yeah. movie. So it was it was a nice <laughs> bonus, but it doesn't. Yeah, it, it, the the limitations are are pretty clear. Uh, yeah. what they had to work with. Um, <laughs> so it's, for Superman completists like myself, it's, it, oh yeah. I it, don't know. It's wonderful
0: to see, but it, it only makes you feel bad because you think to yourself, ah, oh, what could have been, um, but <laughs> yeah. they, but Donner had even said, he said there were a lot of things in that. Cause you know, they were shooting it very early on and, he said, based on what they had figured out in Superman 1, he said he probably would have reshot a lot of what you saw. Because Reeves' performance is a little tentative. In, in, basically, it's all the stuff in The Fortress of Solitude. He's, he's doing kind of a um, slightly weird kind of English accent when he's playing Kalel. And, uh, and Donner said he would have reshot all of that. Um, and, and that was really the first stuff Christopher Reeves shot on the movie. So, you know, he's very much in a tentative phase, and, and Donna felt like we probably would have redone all of that to let him bring, you know, what he had discovered in the shooting of the rest of the movie to those scenes. Um, And, and he probably, he said they even thought they'd probably try to get Brandon back, though they weren't sure if they could, you know.
1: Yeah. Mm. Well, the cat, th- there's some casting curios, too, that I was going to bring up while we're talking. Uh, One of the things I heard was that the dentist... Ilya Salkine's wife uh, <laughs> was screen tested for the role of Superman at one point and that's, uh, that's such a Don, Boyne. Do, 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 Don Boyne Don yes. Boyne
0: yeah is his name um, yeah well the casting Superman turned out to be the, the biggest headache the, originally the idea was to go for a star so the first person I think they approached was Robert Redford and he said no they actually have, First, Paul Newman which was really interesting because at that point Newman was in his mid-50s already um, and then Newman said no so they then they offered him either Lex Luthor or Jarrell and he said no to that too. Um, I don't think they actually approached him but the most interesting potential casting idea was um, uh, someone had suggested Muhammad Ali and uh, he actually <laughs> appears on some of the casting sheets. I, I don't know whether they they got there or not. Um, Bruce Jenner, as you mentioned, he was he was a contender but because he had just finished in the Olympics but apparently when they they brought him to screen test, um, he, he couldn't act and that 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 was the end of that. Um Sylvester Stallone, I believe, I know Stallone wanted it. I think they actually screen tested him, but he, he really did want it. Um, so they, they were kind of going that, and then they realized that wasn't quite working. They weren't really going to be able to find a star. Um, so then they thought, well, let's see if we can find an unknown. And apparently Sky Aubrey's dentist was this guy Don Boyne. He was a Beverly's dentist. And she said, this guy looks like Superman. And so she told her husband, and they everyone talked about it, and they thought they were nuts, but they said, you know what, why don't we test them and see? And I've seen the screen test. It's on one of the DVDs also. Um, but number one, the poor man couldn't act, and number two, and they said that he looked great apparently in person, but on screen he looked about 15 years older than he, than he was. So he just looked like kind of an old Superman who couldn't act. Um, so... But, yes, The Dentist is a true story. Uh, And Christopher Reeve was, um, at that point, an off-Broadway actor. Uh, He had done a soap opera. He then made his Broadway debut earlier in the same year with Katherine Hepburn in a play called A Matter of Gravity. Um, So he's kind of up and coming in New York. And uh, Lynn Spallmaster, the famous casting uh, director, you know, those guys always know who's up and coming. Um, so he had put Christopher Reeve on a list a bunch of times. And you know who else was on that list, which kind of makes me laugh? Um, uh, William Hurt was on the list. uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, Stallmaster was a big fan of William Hurt at the time. And Christopher Reeve and William Hurt were actually friends. Uh, And I guess, I think the story is they saw Reeve once, and they weren't impressed because he was real thin and his hair wasn't the, you know everyone thinks his hair is dark but he had kind of a sandy blonde brown hair was his real color so I guess when he showed up for the audition or they looked at the first um, pictures and things they weren't impressed and they kind of dismissed him but then as they went along they could they were really having trouble and the word that I've heard is they got very close to casting John Boyd and I think Voight made a deal with them. The other guy who was this strong contender was Perry King.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, and
0: Perry, yeah, Perry King at that time was more in the unknown. I mean, he'd done a few minor things. And then <laughs> John Floyd <Porter> was <laughs> <man, man>, Yes, <yeah. laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and he'd been in wards of Flatbush at that yes. point and, and things. So he was pretty much on high on the list. And Voight apparently had made some deal with them, which was like, if you can't find anybody else, I'll do it. So John Voight was kind of in the pen. But Donner wasn't really thrilled with either of those choices. But, you know, I think they were probably willing to go with Perry King at some point. But then uh, Stallmaster finally prevailed on them to, to actually meet uh, Christopher Reeve for real. And they did. Uh, they met him at the Sherry Netherlands in New York City. And Donner still had his reservations because Christopher Reeve was real thin. But Christopher Reeve told him, he said, I used to be an actor. I mean, I used to be an athlete. And he said, if you give me the part, I will put on the weight. I'll put on the muscle. And, um, and Donna was still not sure, but they decided to bring him to Pinewood for a test. Well, actually, it was Shepard for a test. And in the screen test is when they saw him made up as Superman and they saw the way he decided to play it, they, the, minute, the minute the screen test was over, they knew it was going to be him. And he actually had an offer, I think, before his plane got back to New York City.
1: Wow! Yeah, and and I know I know Dave Prowse, who played Darth Vader, helped him bulk up. I believe, I think yes, he was. that's. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, he was
0: known mostly as a bodybuilder, and of course, he had done parts in movies, doing just Darth Vader, and they hired him to bulk up Christopher Reeve, who I think then was like a hundred and maybe eighty pounds, which Chris was a really tall guy. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't – he was pretty thin. They wanted him up around 220, 230, and they wanted, obviously, that to be muscle. So Dave Prowse started working him out. One of the best things – like, if you watch the film, you can sort of see where things were done. The very first time he ever put on the Superman costume and played Superman in the movie is the scene where he carries – there's a burglar climbing up the outside of a building, and he captures Mm -hmm. him, and he brings him down to the ground and hands him to a police officer – all of the stuff up on the building was shot towards the end of the production schedule. And if you look at Christopher Reeve in those scenes, he's built up and he's got these terrific muscles and he's bursting <laughs> out of the costume. And when he flies down to the ground, that was the very first scene he did as Superman. And he's the skinniest beanpole guy. Like They clearly have stuffed the uniform with things to make him look like he's got muscles. And um, if you're ever watching the film, watch it closely, because by the time he hits the ground, he's lost about 40 pounds and tons of muscle. It's really the funniest thing if you pay attention.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah, Uh, there were a couple other things, too, uh, very quickly. Um, I thought the casting of Perry White was interesting, because uh, Eddie Albert originally accepted the role, I believe. Well, I think it was Jack uh, Klugman, and then it was Eddie Albert, and then Albert wanted more money, and then Keenan Wynn took it, and they shot some footage with <laughs> Keenan Wynn, and then Keenan Wynn, uh, for some reason, he had to be dismissed. He was—I know the rumors have always been he had some drinking problems, so I don't know if that had played well, into it or not. But
0: yeah, no. Well, actually, what happened was um, I, the Eddie Albert thing is right. They, they had talked to Jack Klugman, they had talked to uh, somebody. Oh, the. Uh, uh, Mankiewicz told me a great story because right as they were casting, all the presidents met had come out. And um, uh, uh, Jason Robards had won an Oscar for playing Ben Bradley, the newspaper editor in that film. And Mankiewicz apparently knew Jason Robards. He said, why don't we get Jason Robards? That would be kind of a funny joke. He played an editor and he won an Oscar or play an editor for us. So he called up Jason Robards and said, hey, Jason, uh, Tom, uh, we're doing Superman over in England. We want you to be in it. And he said, Superman? He goes, yeah, we want you to play Perry White. He goes, Superman? He goes, the guy with the red boots and the cape? And would and said, yeah. And, and um, uh, Jason Robards said, ah, forget it. I don't want to do that. And uh, Mankiewicz said, but we have Marlon Brando and we have Gene Hackman. And, and Robards replied, well, that's their problem. And so he, he didn't want to do it uh, from there. Uh, yeah, Eddie, Eddie Albert wanted more money, so they hired Keenan Wynn, and Keenan Wynn never got out of the airport. He arrived in England and had a heart attack uh, right in Heathrow Airport.
1: Oh, that's uh, what it was. And wow. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, so they they called they they said they called everyone on their list, and the rule was you had to have a passport. It wouldn't even talk to you. They got Jackie Cooper. He had a passport. He was in England two days later, and there you go. And he did a great job,
1: I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's great. I can't I can't imagine anybody else being Barry White um, <laughs> after he was. He did such a great job. Yeah, that's sure. uh, and of course the casting of Lois Lane is very interesting because uh, there were so many actresses that were uh, yeah. that screen tested. It's, it's yeah, pretty lit- much
0: everybody. Uh,
1: yeah, right. Yeah. Um, uh, they were very big on
0: Susan Blakely. I think that was she was a she was a big contender. Ann Archer tested, Leslie Ann Warren tested, but the two the two finalists were Stockard Channing and Margot Kidder. And they said in the end they decided not to go with soccer Channing because they just said she was great on the stage, but somehow on film she just came across as too tough. And and the feeling was she would have, uh, you know, eaten Clark Kent and Superman for breakfast. And they thought that was not a quality. (laughs) They thought they could sell. And they said Margot just was goofy. She had a kind of a goofy eccentric quality to her that Donna really liked. And um, and that's what kind of won her the part of it, um, amazingly.
1: Numerous actresses were tested, including Anne Archer.
0: <sighs> Superman.
1: Stockard Channing.
0: No, 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 please, please don't move. I mean, just don't go anywhere. I mean, I mean, move if you want to. Just don't
1: fly away. Deborah Raffin. Where do you hail from? And Leslie Ann Warren. Test 54, take 11, pick up.
0: All right,
1: right where you were in action. Oh, uh, would you like um, uh, a, a cookie? Oh, what kind? Uh, and macaroons. So they had sure. they used quite a few different sound stages at Shepperton. Um, it seems like they used um, like I don't know. I'm looking at it seven, eight, something like that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: right, well. Well, it actually, it was split. They, they started at Shepardin. That's originally where they were going to do it.
1: And so what was
0: built at Shepherdon was the um, the interior of the Fortress of Solitude, not the exterior, but the interior. Mm-hmm. And all of the Krypton sets were built there, and they started to build the Daily Planet there. So Brando did all of his filming at Shepherdon, and they did all the stuff with Jeff East and the stuff with um, – you know when the supervillains break into the Fortress of Solitude. Anything done inside the Fortress of Solitude was at Shepherdson. But after when they had that shutdown after Brando left, and it's a little it's a little complicated and boring. But in those days in England, um, there were two different ways you you could rent studios, and basically one of them was cheaper than the other. And Pinewood turned out to be a better deal for the for the producers than and was. And also they realized at a certain point that they needed a lot more stage space than they originally anticipated. And Shepardin was a relatively small studio compared to Pinewood, which is, is the biggest film studio in England. So they basically moved everything over to Pinewood, and they actually tore down the Daily Planet and put that up back up at Pinewood so really, in the end, the only things shot in Shepperton are the Fortress of Solitude and the Krypton stuff. Uh, everything else was done at Pinewood.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that, that's, mm-hmm. that settles it. I don't know why I was under the impression that a big chunk of it was shot at Shepperton, but mm-hmm. yeah. I may have had the wrong information. But uh, one last thing that I wanted to cover is the editing of the movie because I can uh, imagine what a monumental task that must have been yep. Stuart, Stuart <laughs> Baird. Barrett. Yeah, Stuart Barrett. Right. I never can I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly but <laughs> uh but what a what a task assembling all of that well, footage. Had,
0: yeah, he well he worked for Donner on the Omen and the famous the famous stories you hear constantly was the two of them were always at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were always, like, Donna was always firing Baird, and Baird was always quitting. And they worked together for about 15 years. So apparently that was going on the entire 15 years they worked together. But, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I mean, he had a monumental uh, task because not only did he, was there tons of footage, but there were tons of footage from two different movies. And apparently what he eventually did was establish two completely separate editing rooms. So one was Superman, one was Superman Two, And that that was the way he could keep it straight in his head was what they were doing, but also famously, you know, as was the case with visual effects in those days, he had to do a lot of editing of the picture without a lot of the effects ready because they tended to all come in. I mean, what he said once was, I think they were still editing the movie about five weeks before the movie actually premiered. They were still working on it. Um, I think the music was finally finished about five weeks before they premiered. And for a, you know, for 70-millimeter prints in those days, that was cutting it really, really close. But I, I think Baird's work on the movie is just brilliant. He did a thing that all the people who did Superman movies after that did not do. And, and you have to look really closely. But whenever Superman flies, every movement, like if Superman turns one way or turns another way, Baird cuts to another angle. And mm-hmm. he does it every time Superman, and anytime Superman is in action, action. And one of the things that does is it keeps your mind, it doesn't allow you to dwell on the effects long enough to spot the scenes, but also it just gives it this kinetic, dynamic quality. And none of the other Superman movies have that quality. And I think it's part of the reason you're totally pulled along by it, because um, there's literally never a dull second in the action sequences.
1: Yeah. That's a great point, and I never thought of that. But now that you bring it up, I do. I, I do recall seeing it, and that that is that is an, um, a very ingenious ploy to use in in the editing of it because it does certainly yeah. work. And um, yeah, because I mean they were finding their way with these effects. So I I, I guess there was, you know, and and they did get progressively better as they went on. I just recently watched Supergirl, which is not great to say the least, but the effects are surprisingly good in that, uh, which really
0: surprised me. No, no, I was going to say the team Donner assembled for Superman pretty much worked on Superman, Superman 2, Superman 3, and Supergirl. They didn't work on a very terrible superman for the quest <laughs> for peace but by the time they got to supergirl they had perfected a lot of a lot of what they did but yeah. um i i still like superman's a pretty interesting movie because it uses just about every possible effect to make superman fly but the the key one was that they they actually did a lot of front projection work and then they there was a device uh, created by a man named Zoran Purisic called um, the Zoptic system. And what that was was uh, front projection, but with a rotating screen and with two, the camera and the projector interlocked by a computer. And that's all super technical, but basically what it meant was they could sort of position Christopher Reeve in one place, and they could zoom in on the background and the foreground in synchronization to make it look like he was speeding along, um, you know, certain landscapes. And obviously, the footage was usually shot by a helicopter. The plate work, um, but but that was one of the main techniques, and it's it's very very convincing. Um, and and you know, and there's some blue screen stuff, and some of it is more convincing than others, but but cumulatively, it's still Really, really persuasive. And I mean, I find, I mean, it certainly has its flaws, but I find it as persuasive as, you know, a lot of the CGI stuff we see, which is still as perfect as it is technically, always seems, always feels phony to me. (laughs) You know,
1: but. I'm right there with you. Totally. Totally. Before I um, end their conversation here, I wanted to get your thoughts on the television version of Superman, the movie, which had, uh, (laughs) we all know it was a good way for the Solkines to. Uh, make a little more money, shall we say, uh, to line their the Salkinds, pockets. The
0: yeah, they never did anything for money, those guys.
1: They, they, they wanted no, to- never, never. No.
0: <laughs> um, well, I, I always call that Superman the rough cut because that's basically what it is. Um, they, uh, well, basically, the movie was released and the Salkinds, the one thing Warners, Warners ended up getting some TV rights. Well, no, they got they got a lot of theatrical rights, way more than the kinds wanted but one of the things they ended up the Salkinds kept was the TV rights and so they found out that when they sold it to TV if they could put more footage in it to pad it out to two nights they would basically make twice the money they would have made you know if, if they showed it in a single evening so they basically went back and put in Donna called it like every piece of footage I shot you know like um, they put in it basically padded scenes out with extra angles, with takes. They repeated things, and it's basically what the rough cut of the movie was. It's, it's an assembly edit of, of of the original footage, and they put it on for two nights. And you know, it's it's a wonderful curiosity. Uh, they put it out on DVD last year, on Blu-ray. I mean, uh, last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fascinating to look at if you're a film person because you get to see all the extra footage and the scenes that they didn't use, um, which which there were some things, uh, some extra scenes, but it doesn't play like a movie. The, the the theatrical cut is the one that was finished. You know, the 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 TV one has long lags of pacing and certain scenes go on and on and on forever. But that's the nature of a rough cut. Um, but, you know, I think TV audiences in those days didn't they didn't care probably. And you you break it up with enough commercials, it probably feels long enough already that they're not noticing, gee, these scenes lag. <laughs> you know, so,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is true. I, I was surprised last year when they put that – They there was no uh, warning or, or – like two weeks before it came out, they announced it was coming out. And I was so shocked. Yeah. Because everybody assumed that that footage was lost, except for the TV masters, which are 4x3. Now, we all know Superman right. the movie was shot in Panavision, the 2.35 right. to 1 ratio. Right. So that was the the rationale for the, the people at Warner Brothers in the home video division for not releasing it on a high-definition format. They said, well, you know, we can't find the. Uh, the original <laughs> white queen uh, masters. And then lo- the story goes that they were doing some archiving and they found these boxes that uh – that had 19 reels of film. And it's, it's a Superman TV <laughs> version. And, and they started digging, and they found out that they looked, and they said, whoa, <laughs> this is actually yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know, it was kind of a, a nice find. And I thought they did a pretty good job, because the television version, I noticed, uh, was kind of rough. The edits were very, very rough, and they smoothed out yeah. a lot of that and did some color correction on it. So, so it, it's... It's better than it has any right to be, uh, even though, like you said, it's you can tell there's definitely some padding going on. So yeah, um, well,
0: from from an editorial point of view, it's, it's still basically a rough cut. But technically, yeah, they improved it a lot, and I mean, it, yes. it's you know smart. I, I the Donner cut made them a lot of money on DVD and Blu-ray, and I think they were looking for ways to see if they could repeat the success of that. I have it all. It's all great to have as sort of an oddity, Um, you know. But the the movie is the movie, and uh, and I always recommend that if you're going to watch Superman the movie, try to watch the original theatrical cut. And if you're going to watch the theatrical cut, make sure you go into the sound and do not select the um, the uh, five speaker surround sound option, which is the normal one for DVD, because that is a new soundtrack that was created for the original DVD release back in 2001 because the original soundtrack elements had degraded. But it isn't the soundtrack that was heard in the film when it was originally released. That one, there's one that's like a two-speaker stereo option. You Mm -hmm. pick that one, then you're going to hear the movie as it was released uh, originally. So I always tell people, look at the original cut and look at it with the two-point sound, not the five-point sound.
1: It's a very, very good piece of information for our listeners, and I appreciate you bringing that up. So, yeah. Well, uh, I'm not going to take any more of your time. Uh, I do want to give you a chance to promote anything that you might have upcoming that you want to talk about and uh, or not. <laughs> it depends well, on <laughs> – Well, I, I
0: appreciate that. Don't, don't have much upcoming at the moment. Um, I still have my books out there. I really appreciate you mentioning the King Kong book. There may be an updated version of that coming, uh, not immediately, but sooner than later, I hope. Um, And the Close Encounters book is still out there, as is the Amadeus and Hard Day's Night one. Um, We did a big show about uh, two years ago for the 40th anniversary of the 1970s King Kong and we did a QA and a afterwards with Rick Baker and a bunch of other folks, and you can find that on YouTube. Uh, and I was lucky enough to host the Q&A. So just put in, uh, look for King Kong uh, 40th Anniversary Aero Theater, A-E-R-O, Santa Monica, um, in December of, of 2016, and hopefully that will pop up. Hopefully people will enjoy that. And they can always reach me at uh, www.raymorton.com.